0: Grab your Bibles this morning. We finished Luke's Gospel last Sunday morning and this morning we're going to begin a new study through a book in the New Testament in the book of Philippians. So if you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 1 this morning and if you are turn there together with me, shall we stand as we do out of respect for the Word of God and let me read Philippians 1 verse 1 through 7. Philippians chapter 1 verse 1. The letter begins, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me Of grace. And Father, we ask as we hold the Word of God open before you this morning, that Lord, as the Creator of our lives and the author of this book, that by your Holy Spirit and His ministry among us, that you would prepare us to have an ear to hear what your Spirit wants to say to this part of your church assembled this morning. That Lord, you would make us, by your Spirit, quicken us, make us alert and attentive and able to hear the voice of God speaking personally to each of our hearts. We ask you to bless your word in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I am certain that in the midst of this room this morning, we have all thought or maybe heard or even said before ourselves something like this. That person is their own worst enemy. I think that statement, when I declare it, is something that we all understand exactly what that means. That person is their own worst enemy. Uh, In fact, this morning, how about this? Have you ever thought, honestly, this? It often seems that I'm my own worst enemy. Sometimes we find ourselves thinking that. It seems like I'm my own worst enemy worst enemy now let me tell you something spiritually speaking from scripture that is absolutely accurate because the truth of the matter is one of my greatest enemies spiritually is not always the world tough as that is and it's not always satan you know there was a book that came out years ago if uh, Satan made you do it, you blew it. And, and, and again, the whole concept being, yes, Satan tempts us and he distracts us, and, but the bottom line is God has also given us free will and volition and the ability uh, to make our own choices. And spiritually speaking, the world and Satan not necessarily are always my greatest enemies. So often my greatest enemy, I find, is myself myself. And that is the self-life. And what I mean by that is that self-life, we often call it the flesh, the Bible refers it to, that inner part of us that is driven and motivated by our inborn sinful nature. That David says, in sin my mother conceived me. We are inclined by nature, we're sinful by nature to do what is wrong. And because of that, there is this struggle with this thing called the self-life. Interesting to me that Jesus, in regards to quantifying what it meant to truly be a follower of him as the Lord of our life, in fact, said this, Luke nine twenty three and 24. Jesus said this, if anyone desires to come after me, listen, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. See, even as Jesus, who is our example, denied himself that he might embrace the will of God for his own life, Jesus clarifies in order for us to truly pursue him, to go after him as Lord, in order for us to truly follow him and embrace God's will, a person you and I must seek daily paul says in corinthians i die daily and we must seek daily honestly to choose to deny ourselves that we might embrace god's will and god's plan for our life instead we have to choose the denial of the self-life in other words to say no to ourselves and that strong powerful self-life within us now By way of application, what is the self-life? Well, let me give to you, if I could, some illustration with words we all know to kind of show you some fruit of what the self-life is. It's things like being self-seeking and self-centered and self-absorbed and self-serving. And and wait, there's actually a few more. In fact, if you'll bear with me, let me actually read to you a list. How about being self-conscious and self-focused and self-promoting, and self-pity, being self-deceived and self-justifying, self-confident and concerned about self-image, being self-sufficient, self-indulgent, self-reliant, self-exalting, self-gratifying. Have you ever noticed some of those tendencies among people in our world? Have you ever honestly even noticed some of those tendencies even among the church? or if we want to go deeper and be very honest, don't you sense and see on occasion some of those strong tendencies even in yourself? I know I do. How else do you think I could come up with that kind of a long list with the word self in it so many times? Because I have to examine my own heart before I speak anything of the truth to someone else. And so often I can put a list down like that because those are things that I'm discouraged that I find in my own self that strong self-life within me that leads me to be self-absorbed or self-centered. Well, listen, the good news is this. The letter of Philippians, which we're about to embark upon and study together, really contains fabulous truth, which can be God's antidote to help resolve a lot of the major problems that we have with the self-life. Because in these four chapters, the Spirit of God has given truth throughout it that really can set us free from a lot of these self-destructive tendencies that we find in all of our lives and can help us instead to learn how to live more Christ-like. In fact, if you study the book of Philippians, you'll take note as we go through it. There are many different, if you could say, sub-themes, I think, that are weaved throughout the book But the bottom line is, as I read it over and over and over and over again, what I see in reading through it is a predominant theme resurfacing in it. The predominant theme is to be Christ-like. To be Christ-like. And what was Jesus like? He was someone who was self-sacrificing and other-centered. That's exactly what Jesus was like. And I think the theme of Philippians really is to be Christ-like. In fact, in four chapters, the word Christ appears 38 times. The word Jesus appears 22 times. That means that 15 times, on average, in every chapter, the name of Jesus Christ shows up. In other words, it is a letter in the New Testament that focuses on Jesus Christ a whole lot. If you want an expanded title for this letter, I think an expanded title could be this... How to live for Jesus Christ and how to become more like Jesus Christ. How to live for Jesus Christ and how to become more like Jesus Christ. Now, if you'll bear with me, for clarity's sake as a backdrop, let me give you a little background of this particular writing, this letter that Paul was writing to the church of Philippi. It was written somewhere, we believe, around 61 AD, during one of the many occasions where Paul the Apostle found himself imprisoned for preaching the gospel. Remember, Paul had a calling as a pastor-teacher that also together with that was something where God also used him as a church planter and a missionary. Paul didn't just pastor and stay in one. It seems that Paul had a unique gift, as some do, to also go out to be a pioneer, a groundbreaker, and God had equipped him to be a church planter and kind of this missionary capacity. And Paul is writing now a letter to the church of Philippi, which was a church that he had planted about 10 years prior to the time of this writing. In fact, Acts chapter 16 gives us the record of the establishment or the planting of the church of Philippi. In Acts 16, we get the record there of how this church specifically was planted and what unfolded. In fact, if you'll hold your finger here in Philippians, I want to read to you the record of the plant of the church of Philippi. Uh, and, And I can say, familiarize yourself with it, study it as a background, but if you guys are anything like me, most of you probably won't. So... For sake of lesson in the class, and so we have a foundation moving forward, we're just going to read it together as a a class this morning here. Acts chapter 16, let me read to you beginning in verse 5. And I'm not going to make comment here for sake of time, but I just want to sow into your minds the foundation of the planting of this church. Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6, Excuse me, regarding Paul's second missionary journey that we have recorded, it tells us this... Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And then they came to Mysia and they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. Interesting, the Holy Spirit guiding their ministry efforts, opening doors. Closing doors here, the Spirit stops them from preaching in certain regions. And the reason why, verse 8, So passing by Mysia, they came to Troas. And then a vision appeared to Paul in the night, a man of Macedonia, where, interesting, the European world is today. So this really is the first church, Philippi, planted in the European community. A vision appeared to Paul. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us, it says, to preach the gospel to them. So they concluded, closed door, closed door, closed door open door God's calling us to preach to those particular people in that area therefore sailing from Troas it tells us verse 11 they went to a few different territories verse 12 from there they came to Philippi which is the foremost city in that part of Macedonia and they stayed there for some days and on the Sabbath day we went out of the city to the riverside where prayer was customarily made and we sat down and spoke to the women who met there And a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. And the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, If you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. And it happened as we went to prayer, watch this, verse 16, as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination, an unclean demonic spirit. She met us on the way to prayer, who it says she had brought her masters much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us, Luke tells us, and cried out saying, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. And she did this, notice, repeatedly for many days. But Paul, this spirit filled man, look at this, greatly annoyed. That makes you feel better, doesn't it? Paul, greatly annoyed, turned around and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her master saw their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them to the marketplace to the authorities and they brought them to the magistrates and said these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe and the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods and when they laid many stripes on them they threw them into prison commanding the jailer to keep them securely anybody have a heart for church planning yet? fantastic isn't it? Verse 24, having received such a charge, he put them in the inner prison, fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners fled, drew his sword and was about to commit suicide because to lose a prisoner meant death by Roman law anyway. So he's ready to kill himself because God's just set all the prisoners free. But verse 28, Paul called to him with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. And then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas And he brought them out and said, "'Sirs, what must I do to be saved?' And they said, "'Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ "'and you will be saved, you and your household.' And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all that were in his house. And he took them that same hour at night, washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized And when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Now, here you get a background. The last few verses describe ultimately how Paul then is ready to leave the city, and the authorities come and and seek to speak with Paul, and and ultimately Paul goes back. He visits the church, and he's basically pushed out of the community, as Paul often was. He'd go in, plant a church, and as a result of planting a church and loving people and preaching the gospel, usually people hated him and pushed him out of the community. It just kind of seemed to be the pattern if you follow Paul's ministry. So Paul now moves on. Now, come back with me to Philippians. Fast forward ten years from that point. Here you have this church, and what an interesting start to a church. You have a woman who's a businesswoman. She accepts Jesus Christ. It seems her family does as well, this woman, Lydia. You have a demon-possessed young girl who's set free and probably became born again. And then you have this jailer who was about to commit suicide, and Paul stops him, takes away his suicidal tendency by pointing him to Jesus Christ. You have these few believers You fast forward 10 years, that was the initiation of this church plan. Paul's been traveling to other areas, but he's remained in contact with the Philippian church. He's maintained a relationship with them. From the scriptural records that we have in other letters in the New Testament it seems the Philippians and Paul had a special bond. They had a partnership. They began to develop in ministry together, even to the point where the Corinthians seems to indicate that they became financial supporters of Paul's missionary and church planning endeavors as he moved around. And Paul has a special bond with these believers, and he's greatly desiring to see them experience God's best spiritually. But currently, 10 years later now, Paul the Apostle, as you see from even our reading this morning, we'll see it as we go further, Paul's imprisoned again. Ten years later, he finds himself once again imprisoned for faithfully preaching the gospel. And as Paul is serving another one of his imprisonments for being faithful to the gospel, rather than just sitting there in the prison and wallowing in self-pity and being self-absorbed and self-focused, instead, what does Paul do? You have it in front of you. He picks up his pen in prison and instead of focusing on self-pity, he seeks to invest in the spiritual development of the church and the believers there in Philippi. And he writes to them this letter now to a church he planted about 10 years prior it's still a fairly young church it's only 10 years old in its maturity and he writes to them to seek to help them mature in their faith so look with me in verse 1 let's look at kind of the introduction of this book this morning paul begins there in verse 1 of philippians saying paul and timothy bond servants of Jesus Christ so paul opens the letter in the traditional way they would in the ancient culture by first introducing and identifying himself in the author of the letter you'll see this in the new testament much different than today when we write a letter you know maybe write a letter if we do write snail mail today or even an email you know 3 4 pages long and at the end of it we put you know love john or or you know sincerely sally at the end of it and we identify ourselves at the end of a letter in the ancient culture they didn't do that letters were written on scrolls the manuscripts were on scrolls so you, if you did that you would have to unroll the whole thing to get all the way to the end to see who wrote that it just was cumbersome and not practical so the practice was you identified yourself at the beginning which may have come in handy sometimes because as soon as you opened it you saw who it was from you might save yourself to read certain letters if you know what I mean oh that's from him don't want to read that he would identify himself right at the beginning. That's why he starts the letter with his identification. The letter is from Paul, we're told here. And at this point in his ministry, notice Paul, we see here, is together with Timothy. Timothy is basically one of Paul's protégés in ministry. He's one of the few young men that on occasion Paul would pull to his side to invest in them, to train them. And we see this biblical pattern where those who are more seasoned in ministry pull a Titus to themselves pull a Timothy to themselves and it's a beautiful thing something we should be replicating today Paul understood look I want to replicate myself in other men I want to invest in other men who can do exactly what I'm doing so that the work can be duplicated Timothy was one of those guys for Paul who Paul pulled alongside he mentored him he trained him in the works of God how to do ministry effectively with a pure heart in the right way And in fact, in chapter 2, we'll see Paul will use Timothy's life as an example of what a good minister should be, and we'll see that more when we get to the second chapter. Notice how Paul identifies himself, however, there in verse 1. He calls himself a bond servant. Now, that term has its origin in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 21. See, in that day, if you fell into hard times or into debt, let's say, you could sell yourself as a servant to do labor for a master to pay off your debt. However, the law declared that a master could only use a person in that capacity for six years at the maximum. In the seventh year, you had to set a slave or set a servant free. However, let's say that was you and you had to sell yourself into labor to pay off your debt, if at the end of seven years, you were really enjoying serving that particular master and he treated you well and you loved your master and you established a connection with your master and you wanted to remain serving. So I, I can't think of anything better to do than to be a part of this family and to continue to serve under the authority of this master. You could willingly decide to forsake your freedom in the seventh year, to give up your rights and to choose to become this master's bond bondservant for life, and what they would do is, the master would take you to the doorpost. They would drive an awl through your ear, ancient form of ear piercing, not too hygienic. They'd stick an awl through your ear. They'd put a gold hoop in it, and that gold hoop identified that special relationship that you had chosen to be a bond servant to that master for life. A bond servant, please understand, was not a slave by force. They were a slave and a servant by preference. Because they loved their master, they chose to submit to their master and to live under his authority and to serve his purposes. And Paul describes this as his role in his own life. He calls himself, notice, a bond servant of Jesus. Paul's saying, I am someone who willingly surrendered and serves Jesus, not because I have to. I live this way because I want to. Because Jesus is a good master, and I wouldn't want to serve anybody other than Jesus. And listen, everybody's got a master. This morning, you have a master. You serve something. You, oh, I don't serve. Something. Oh, yes, you do. It may be your career. It may be your passions and pleasures that you can't resist indulging. It may be. Some, but everybody serves something and someone. And Paul says, "You know what? If that's the case, I'll serve Jesus because he's a great master. He's a good master." Now, when Paul uses this term here, bondservant, it also shows us a few things. First of all, I think that term shows that Paul's attitude in ministry was one of humility. He takes a rather lowly title to himself. This is someone who was an apostle, God-ordained church planner, preacher, New Testament gospel writer, I mean, New Testament writer of the the scriptures more than anyone else he's used. And he takes this lowly title to himself of a bondservant, which shows us something, that Paul was not this, uh, you know, sort of self-exalting, self-promoting type of Christian worker. That was not Paul. Paul, quite the opposite, did not want or need to be recognized as special or superior You don't see it. Paul instead has this very humble attitude in ministry. A God ordained leader? Yes. An apostle? Someone who understood his authority in the Lord and exercised it properly? Yes. But by the same token, someone who had a humble attitude and practiced servant leadership. Someone who said, you know what, I'm just serving my master and whatever it takes to forward the progression of his work. That's who I am. I'm just a bondservant of Jesus. Beautiful, beautiful example. I think the term that Paul uses there also shows that he had a healthy perspective on his life. Because notice that he does not say, Paul, a prisoner of Rome. And that's what he was at this point. He was a prisoner of Rome. But instead, Paul doesn't focus again on his circumstances or his own unpleasant suffering at the time. And he doesn't even seek, when he has the opportunity of the audience of listeners and fellow believers, he doesn't even seek the opportunity to to get a little self pity from them, have a little, woe is me, I'm a prisoner of Rome. Paul says, I'm not a prisoner of Rome, I'm a bondservant of Jesus. So whatever my master wants me to do and wherever my master wants me to go, that's what I do. And if my master wants me imprisoned right now, that's what my master wants. And if my master wants me to be in an unpleasant place right now and to be imprisoned under the Roman authority, then you know what? That must be because he wants me chained to Roman guards so I can share the gospel with them in the situation and station that he's put put me in. And what a beautiful example, this perspective that Paul had. And again, for application for us, despite your circumstances this morning, can I encourage us, always seek to have a proper perspective, whatever your lot is in life, whatever you feel chained to, whatever station God has you in, whatever your circumstances, can I encourage you to do two things? Number one, be a servant there. Just be a humble servant there. You will blow people's minds. Because we live in a selfish culture, ladies and gentlemen. Just be a servant. It will gain people's attention. And more than that, redeem the time for Jesus. Oh, oh, I wish I wasn't in prison. I wish I wasn't shackled to this person. Just redeem the time. Keep a perspective. Be a bond servant for Jesus where you're at and redeem the moments that you have. Paul goes on now to say who the letter's addressed to. He says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus... Who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons. Notice, Paul, as he begins the letter, he addresses now who it is for, of course, the church of Philippi. But notice in verse 1 here also, he calls the believers or Christians in that church, he calls them what? Circle that word, saints. Saints. Now, when we hear the term saint, sadly today, we have misconstrued tremendously the image or the idea of what a saint is or what a saint means. We we have construed this idea where a saint is a person who has attained some superior spiritual status, some elite standing in spiritual things above others, and there's somebody who has since died, but now they deserve some elite status of recognition. Maybe we put a statue to them, and maybe we even encourage people to pray to them because they're a saint. Listen, the Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible knows nothing of that. The Bible indicates to us here clearly from Scripture's perspective in our verse what a saint is from God's perspective. Notice, a saint is someone, verse 1, who is in Christ Jesus. That's the biblical description of a saint. Someone who is in Christ Jesus, a person in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. That word saint is hagios in the Greek. It just literally is where we get our word holiness. It's a word that means to be set apart for exclusive use. And it refers to the life of a person who is a result of embracing Jesus and salvation as Savior and Lord that they now live a life set apart for Jesus Christ. They live a life set apart. They've been set apart to live for Jesus Christ. And the Bible shows us here that those who are saints are believers. Any believer, any Christian, someone in Christ Jesus relationally and positionally, from God's viewpoint, we have to remember, technically, and I don't mean this to sound sarcastic, there are saints and there are ain'ts, if you would. Do you understand my concept? There are saved and unsaved people. It's very simple categorically for God as he looks at the earth. Those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are not in Christ Jesus. So the saints are those set apart to live for Jesus Christ. And notice that Christians also, here we see in this verse, have a dual citizenship. We serve two kingdoms. He says to the saints who are in Christ Jesus, but also who are in Philippi. See, in Philippi, that's their earthly address, their geographic location. In Christ Jesus, that's their spiritual address. That That's their, their heavenly citizenship. And the same is true for all of us as believers. We have a present earthly connection to a geographic city. For them, it was in Philippi. For you, maybe it's in Margate or Ventnor or Ocean City or Maze Landing or Egg Harbor Township. But you're in a particular geographic location. That's where God's put you. But more than that, you also have a spiritual position being in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 3, 21, Paul is going to say in the third chapter that our citizenship is in heaven, that we have a dual citizenship. Now, would you agree? That's where all the struggle comes from, at least for me anyway. The struggle is trying to find a proper balance between being connected to two worlds. My citizenship is in heaven, my heavenly kingdom, but yet at the same time, I'm living out for a season here in my present Philippi here on earth and the struggle is trying to find the balance because my flesh wants to be self-indulgent in Philippi. And the spirit of God within me is trying to tell me like Colossians 3, if you are raised with Christ, seek those things which are above. Paul shows his perspective in Philippians 1 down in verse 21, he says for me to live is Christ and then to die is gain. And that's the challenge. Between living between those two kingdoms. Notice Paul also shows us here the presence in this church of leadership roles at that time. Which is interesting, ten years into their ministry as a church. Notice among the saints were also mingled, it says, bishops, verse 1, and deacons. Bishops and deacons. Those are two terms that to spiritual leadership in the local church. The term bishop is an interchangeable term throughout the New Testament. ...used interchangeably also with the term elder or overseer. And these are the spiritually mature men that God ordains, that he sets apart, he raises up and identifies... ...to basically serve as overseers in the local church. To provide spiritual oversight to the church's doctrine, to its uh, direction, to its development... ...and also to provide spiritual care for the flock of God in teaching in counseling, in prayer, and so forth. These are the elders, the overseers, or bishops, the term means. There's also the term deacons, and the word deacon is a term to refer to another important spiritual role in the body of Christ, another function. That term in the New Testament describes those who are ordained by God to handle the practical affairs in the church. Those who, in essence, are caring for the physical needs of the church, the operational things that need to happen, things like administration or building tasks, practical things, finances, you know, material functions and duties that are a part of the church that keep the engine running, if you understand what I'm saying. So you have elders and overseers, bishops, this term referring to those who care for the spiritual aspects of the church, and then you also have deacons, those who take care of the practical things. And you see a beautiful example of this laid out in Acts chapter 6. You have that illustrated right there before you. And again, interesting progression. Here's this church that was planted, as I said earlier, with just a few people to start. And now look, fast forward 10 years later. Ten years later, you have a church that's a healthy, established group of believers. And there's it's grown and there's established leadership. The church now has bishops and deacons, people serving in God-appointed roles. Paul goes on, verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that typical Pauline greeting, grace, the common Greek greeting, peace, shalom, the common Jewish greeting and many point out often always in that order. Grace first, peace second and again the Spirit may be showing us that you cannot know the peace of God until you first discover and get to know the grace of God. Paul goes on, verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine making requests, he says, for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. So notice, Paul begins the body of the letter now with some encouraging words to affirm, first of all, their value to, the, to him and also to indicate his love for them. First of all, take note, apparently every time that Paul the Apostle thought about those particular believers there in the church of Philippi, he found himself welling up with thanksgiving for their lives. He just was grateful for his connection to their lives. In verse 4, he says, every time he thinks of them, it just brought joy to him. And so thankful was Paul for their lives, so much did Paul come to appreciate them, and he wanted them to be aware of that. That's why he says in verse 3, I thank my God, notice, upon every remembrance of you. Paul was thankful to God because he knew it was God that brought those people into his life. And as Paul thought about the fact that God was responsible for orchestrating this special relationship that he now had with these particular believers, as he thought about that, he said said to the Philippians, look, I just want you to know, you know, you need to know this. Every time I think about you, every time I think about you, I find myself just kind of pausing and saying, Lord, thank you so much for their life. Lord thank you for them thank you so much for what you've done in their lives and thank you so much for bringing them into my life you know maybe this morning uh, perhaps there are some people like that in your life that whenever you think about them you you just find yourself saying oh Lord thank you so much for him thank you so much Lord for her thank you so much for them and can I tell you something it's a really wonderful thing whether through a written note or a word to tell people on occasion, you know what, I just want you to know. I'm so thankful to God for you and that he brought you into my life. And to just share that, so wonderful. That when we have people in our life that we realize if it wasn't for, man, God connected them to us. God brought them into our life. And to be thankful to God for those that he brings into our lives in that way. Just a beautiful thing here you see Paul doing. Notice also in verse 5 that Paul appreciated this sort of enduring and lasting kind of commitment and sharing they had in each other's lives. He says, I'm thankful for your fellowship, verse 5, in the gospel from the first day until now. Now take notice of that term fellowship. Oftentimes, I think, our view of that term fellowship really has a lot of kind of shallow meaning behind it. When we hear the word fellowship, we connect that term fellowship especially as Christians with social interaction. For example, we say, you know, why I went over, you know, so and so's house this weekend and we had and we just we had some really great fellowship together. Or or we you know, if after the service we stick around and we stick some donuts in our face and we talked about that was some really good fellowship. We had fellowship. When the reality is, listen, the Bible's idea of fellowship is really not based on anything social per se. That is having friends or being friendly or having a good time together or having fun and having get-togethers and playing games. And I'm not saying those things are wrong, but that's really not the concept scripturally of what the word fellowship means. Truth be told, and I'll be the first to admit it, many a times being social is quite honestly very superficial. I can be social with people and be very superficial with people. But the Bible says, look, God has a heart for something deeper, especially for Christians. That word fellowship is our Greek word koinonia. And that word literally means to share in things together in a close, personal way. Your translation may render the term there partnership or participation, indicating the idea is a cooperating and contribution where both parties are benefited from one another. There's a partnership. The idea is there's a sharing together of investing in each other's lives, participating in each other's lives being involved in a way whereby there's sort of this give-and-take relationship where, hey, we are on the same course and we are involved in each other's lives and we share in each other's lives and there's this give-and-take, very close, intimate, being there for one another, a camaraderie, a partnership. We participate in each other's lives on a deeper level. And this is what Paul had with these believers. In Philippi, he says from the first day, he says, until, verse 5, now. In other words, 10 years later, Paul still had, and had no doubt had developed over the years, this beautiful relationship with them. And let me say, it's a wonderful thing when God gives us, is it not, these enduring type of relationships. It is a wonderful thing whereby sometimes God brings people into our lives that there's a spiritual camaraderie, and there develops this loyal devotion to one another where God knits your hearts and you share on a journey of a common path and it becomes a joint endeavor and you serve Jesus in a sense of partnership and participating. And I'll tell you something, how I love and appreciate these long-lasting, enduring relationships where there's true koinonia, not just social Hey, we need to have fellowship. We need to have social activities. Nothing wrong with social activities. But God wants spiritual interconnection where we're involved in each other's lives, caring for one another, speaking into each other's lives. Somebody starts to go off track that you have built a relationship where guess what? Whether you want to hear it or not, I have license to speak into your life. Where if I start to go off track, somebody has built a relationship with me because we have given and taken and shared and been there in the tough moments and the, to where they have the right to say, listen, whether you want to hear it or not, I have license to speak into your life right now. And where we're involved in each other's lives, interconnected, sharing in a partnership, listen, ladies and gentlemen, that is God's intention for the Christian life. God's intention for the Christian life is that we would be in a place where we're mutually connected, giving and receiving and benefiting, not a Christian life where we're trying to be self-sufficient and we're trying to be independent and isolated. And uh, Listen, no, no, no. God, God's plan is the body, interconnected. It is so important for spiritual maturity that we develop and maintain such relationships and that we allow them to be established because we all need them. We all need them desperately in our lives. It's important to mutual growth and maturity spiritually. Notice also Paul mentions here in verse uh, 3 through 5 that he apparently prayed for these believers regularly. He said, always in every prayer, making requests for you all. And we'll see more next week as we get to verse 8 and 9 as it goes forward, Paul's actual prayer for them but apparently paul knew one of the greatest ministries he could contribute was to pray for them and you'll notice in paul's letters he makes a lot of comment about his extensive routine prayer life and he was always involved whether physically present or not by praying and interceding for those who were a part of his life verse six paul says being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So Paul expresses notice his spiritual confidence that the work that God had begun in those believers that God would see it through until the end. He says until the day of Jesus Christ. That term day of Jesus Christ is a reference to the time of the return of Jesus. And take note with me here in verse 6 that Paul properly understood how their spiritual life and experience really started. Paul understood that. You see what he says in verse 6? He said, God has begun a good work in you. He understood that every good work in the soul of any person is something that God orchestrates, initiates, and starts. We can't start a good work in ourselves. I can't start a good work in another person. God, by his love and his amazing supernatural grace, intervenes and starts a good work in in people's lives. And we need to give him the glory and the recognition that he's the one that does it. That it's him that has to work in someone's life. That it's he who does do the work. And we all know that. You know, God begins to draw someone. And then God begins to convict and to convince them that they should become a Christian and they need to accept Jesus Christ. And then eventually, guess what? God saves them in the way, in the moment, the hour, and the time that he God saves them And then God is the one by his power who continues to do what? To change me? To sustain you? To further mature us? It's God who works in us to accomplish ministry. Paul's going to say in Philippians chapter 2 it is God who works in you both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Paul understood, and he makes it evident here, that though God used him as an instrument, Paul humbly understood look, I didn't start the work that happened in you. God did it. I might have been an instrument, but by all means, Paul clearly understood I'm not the one responsible for what's happened in your life. God is. And he also understood, I think, and was reminding them, listen, truth be told, you didn't start the work in your life either. You were just responsive to what God did by His Spirit, initiating and drawing and prompting you in the ways that He did. And let us remember, it's God, listen, it's God who begins works in people's lives. Now, it is that understanding that God begins the work that makes us then confident that the spiritual work and its progression will continue onward. Paul says since he began a good work in you, he also what? Will complete it. He'll complete it. You know, when we examine our own lives, oftentimes if we're truthful as human beings, we begin things and we never finish them. Right? We start things and then we never follow through and complete them. I remember that when Trish and I first got married, we bought this nineteen like seventy-two mobile home, ancient of days, praise God for a handy father who knew what to do with the thing. I just we bought this thing and and and, and we did some renovation and work in this thing. And I remember a couple years later we moved out, we sold the thing. And all of the trim work was still outside in the shed. Never, never put this. I just told the next owner here. If you want to put trim up in the house, there it is. It's laying in the shed, full of dust. Never finished. Moved in, had good intentions, but never did it. And we're like that, aren't we? We start projects and then we don't finish projects. We start pursuits and then we don't follow through. Sadly, that at times even applies to relationships. People start relationships and then they don't follow through. People start marriages. And then they abandon marriages and they don't follow through with their commitment. By nature, as human beings, we have this tendency, it seems, in our fickleness and our frailty and our selfishness to begin things and not follow through, to start things and not finish them and carry them through to completion. But unlike us, God is always faithful to finish whatever He begins. Whatever God starts, God stays on task and God completes especially as it pertains to his work in people's lives. Paul said this in First Thessalonians 5, May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He then adds, And he who called you is faithful who also will do it. What a great Bible promise here in Philippians 1.6 that we can be confident of this very thing that he, God, who began a good work in you, in us, will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. See, here's why it's a good promise. Because this morning that means two things. First of all, it can help us rest as a believer though we still stumble and though we still struggle in our Christian life that we can know, hey, you know what? God's going to keep working in my life. And I may be utterly disappointed with where I'm at still spiritually and you may be frustrated in the ways that you keep tripping and failing. And, but the thing of the matter is this. Listen, God's more committed than you are. And God's not looking at your life saying, "Whoa, this project is way more. I did not calculate accurately what this was going to entail. I'm, I'm done. No, listen, from the first day God stepped on the job site and broke ground in your life, he knew exactly what he was signing up for. And he plans on carrying the project through until completion and we may stumble and struggle and fail and backslide and be disappointed but God is more committed to the relationship than you are and despite where you're at this morning you can know this here's what I do know praise God he is going to keep working in my life he, he, he'll keep working in my life and by a secondary note this also assures us this that we can be confident God's working in other people's lives too Which means this morning that for those people in our life that sometimes we begin to be overly concerned or overly involved thinking that, listen, you can rest in faith, hands off. Yes, do your part. Yes, invest to help people. But you can rest in faith and relinquish that unhealthy pressure or maybe the unhealthy over-involvement trying to work in somebody else's life. Listen, just let God work. God will work in people's lives. God will finish the work in your children's life. God will finish the work in your husband's life. God will finish the work in your wife's life. God will finish the work that he's doing in people's lives because it's his work. And you can just be confident in faith and trust him to do that. Look how Paul concludes in this seventh verse. He says, just as it's right for me to think this of you all, because notice, I have you in my heart, Inasmuch both as in my chains and the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of me with grace. Again, Paul indicates how important and precious they were to him. Notice Paul says here, "I often think of you and I have you in my heart. I have you in my heart, and I'm thinking about you." Again, where's Paul in prison? But where's Paul's focus? It's not on himself. He says, "I'm thinking about you. I have you in my heart. In fact, when you read verse 2 to 7, you see repeatedly Paul keeps saying, you, 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 your, you. What's Paul saying? You know what? I'm really doing fine because my focus isn't on me. My focus is on you. And can I tell you something this morning by way of liberation? One of the most liberating things in this life is to get our minds off of ourselves and to focus on other people it is one of the most liberating things that there is because the truth of the matter is we're all in the same boat. Paul says at the end of that verse, we're all partakers of grace. We're all the same needy people begging at the same well of the grace of God. It takes grace to save us. It takes grace to sustain us. And the most wonderful thing we can do is by the grace of God to put our focus on other people instead of ourselves. And it's amazing how liberating that becomes. And really... Because Paul's focus was on them, it was the source of his joy and it was his mental and emotional stability. And same will be true with us.